Aloha. Welcome to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but don't forget, none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Today we're talking about bringing new life into the world, what to do during that most crucial time of delivery for pregnant women. In particular, what's been driving that high rate of cesarean sections for women in the United States, and how can getting back to the basics wind up actually getting things back to normal after all. Now, we've got two fabulous guests today. We have Dr. Keith Ogasawara, maternal fetal medicine from Kaiser Permanente in the studio, along with certified nurse midwife Amanda Lowry. And we're going to talk about the latest in obstetrics and delivery. We'll be taking your calls, as always, each week in just a few minutes, 941-3689 on Oahu. Toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, let's talk a little bit about this whole process of of pregnancy and delivery. We've got two absolute experts right here in the studio. Uh, Dr. Keith, tell me a little bit about what happened over the last several decades with with cesarean sections and now the push to go back towards natural deliveries. What makes this a topic that we need to discuss? Well, I think what happened over the past decades is earlier in, say, the 60s and the early 70s, you know, everybody was doing vaginal deliveries. Cesarean section was thought to be something that was dangerous. You know, it was a major surgical procedure. And then somewhere probably around the 80s and then in the 90s, there was a shift where people started viewing the cesarean section as not that big of a deal. Did you guys just get better at it? Is the surgery more confined? I mean, I know that nowadays, if you have time to plan a cesarean section, you don't have to have a big scar. You can have a lower scar. You can have this be a much minor procedure, much more uh, less invasive procedure. How how did did that make a difference? Yeah, I think part of it was during this time frame. You know, we got better at the surgical procedure. The surgical procedure actually got fairly standardized. And people got better at it. And with antibiotics being available to cut down the risk of infection, uh, that risk went down quite a bit. But I think one of the things that did occur is around the same time, you know, in the 80s and so, fetal monitoring became available. And I think a lot of people thought that, you know, cesarean section was, you know, better, safer, and, you know, would deliver healthier babies. So we're talking about surgical delivery. So a woman would would come in to the labor and delivery room. She would be pregnant. She would be at term. And a cesarean section would be done for medical cause or without medical cause based on the fact that the perception was it's safer, it's easier, it's no longer risky. And so there was this time when our cesarean rates here in the United States were extremely high compared to the rest of the world. One in two or three, actually I think like one in three or four uh, babies that were delivered actually had a surgical delivery. Now, where is that rate now? And how has that perception changed over the last, what would you say, five years, 10 years or so? Well, I think what really changed recently was when people started doing, probably about in the 90s or so, and the early 2000s, we started trying to do vaginal births after cesarean section, and there were some complications seen. And then 
as people got more and more, if you had one cesarean section, you'd have multiple cesarean sections. And then they started noticing that there was a significant complication if you had three or more cesarean sections. And so I think that was the genesis that said, hey, maybe this is not as safe as we think it is. And so that really helped to turn the tide. What is the average rate right now in the United States for cesarean sections? Overall, it's running, depending on where you are in the country, between 30 and 40 percent. So almost one in two. Yes. Now, as a specialist in maternal fetal medicine, you handle pregnancies that might be considered higher risk. That may be based on the age of the mother. That may be based on medical conditions um, such as diabetes, high blood pressure. And it also might be based on situations with the baby. That, that could actually make this a higher risk situation. From what you've seen in the high-risk categories, is that a particular situation where it might be safer to do a cesarean section, or should everyone go through that natural process of trying to deliver vaginally and see how that goes before they jump to doing a surgical procedure? Well, that's actually a very excellent question, because there are, yes, certain conditions in pregnancy where you might say, yes, a cesarean section might be the safest way to deliver the baby. But it's very interesting. Uh, the vast majority of situations, vaginal birth is actually the preferred method for delivery. We actually will try an induction of labor and try and you know proceed with a vaginal birth. And explain what induction means, because for a lot of folks, they may not completely understand what it means. You hear people say they're going in to be, quote, induced, and they may not know what that means. Okay, induction of labor means that you are not basically ready to deliver. Your body hasn't started the labor process. And so what we do with an induction of labor is we use various medications to either prepare the, the cervix and the uterus to start the labor process, or we give medication, often through an IV line, that starts the uterus to start contraction and starts the labor process. So it makes the body ready to say, okay, today's the day. Yes, that's basically what we're doing. And it would still proceed with a natural childbirth? Oftentimes it can, yes. All right, well, let's talk with Amanda. Amanda, you're a certified nurse midwife. Tell me a little bit about what does it take to become a certified nurse midwife? Because, you know, a lot of people may not understand the level of expertise and level of training that you had to acquire to be able to do what you do. Sure. So my focus is on healthy pregnancies and deliveries. So I started off as a nurse, so four years to get my bachelor's in nursing. And then I went on to two more years of training to become a nurse practitioner with my specialty being in women's health, specifically pregnancy and delivery. So six years, basically, of training to be able to do what it is that you do. Correct. And how do you fit into the team? There's a team approach that I think is, is excellent that is done at Kaiser, that is also done at other facilities. And that team approach, that cooperative approach, is extremely important in medicine, whether you're talking about obstetrics, whether you're talking about primary care, surgeries, cancer care, that team approach is essential. Tell me what your role is on the team. I, I do all of the normal with also being able to recognize what is abnormal and 
ask for assistance and collaboration as necessary. So if you come into my office and you are perfectly healthy, having absolutely no problems, you don't ever need to see a physician. I can do everything that the physicians do except for surgeries. Then if any complications arise, because we have such a collaborative practice, I can get those people involved as needed while still normalizing what is normal about pregnancy and delivery. Because even in the most extreme high-risk cases, you're still having a baby. It's still normal. There's still something that can be um, appreciated and normal about the process. Well, and I think part of what we have to realize is, let's face it, human beings have been here for, now there's a debate, how many thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years that we may have been around. But the only way the species perpetuated was childbirth. So you know there's a normal part of this. And it's interesting because what I do as a primary care doctor, as an internist, is, you know, as soon as someone's pregnant, hey, they go to see the OBGYN because to us that's a very special circumstance in their life. And we don't want to give them certain medicines or give them certain treatments that would not necessarily be safe for women during that time. So we often rely on you guys heavily. And and some people joke when they go, yeah, internal medicine doctors feel like pregnancy is like a disease. No, 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 it's not. But it's a situation where we get very worried and very leery. Yep, Dr. Keith shaking his head like, yeah, I've heard that one. And, uh, you know, we just get concerned that we don't want to put women at risk because we're doing something that is outside of the normal range for when we take care of women and and take care of families. Now, let's talk a little bit about a normal pregnancy. So a normal pregnancy duration is nine months or so, depending on the circumstance. When you see people in the office, when do you start seeing them from the time in which they find out they're pregnant? What is sort of the course that you take when you start seeing the people that you're taking care of? When do they first come in? Well, we actually see women throughout the lifespan. So a lot of the times I'm seeing them when they're 16 and asking for their first prescription of birth control or getting their first pap smear. And then some women come in because they're thinking about planning a family. And they're thinking, hey, I want to become pregnant in the next several months. What do I need to start off my pregnancy healthy? Um, Otherwise, if women are going to see us specifically for pregnancy, when they have that first positive home pregnancy test, they can have a visit with me so that we can talk about how to proceed in that pregnancy and be as healthy as possible, things to avoid, things to start doing. Um, Well, and you mentioned something really interesting that, you know, I didn't even realize is that you will see women when they're 16 getting their first pap smear, getting birth control, that not just do you practice midwifery and help women through delivery, but you also take care of women before they're even pregnant. And all the way through menopause. And that's another thing that a lot of people may not realize, you know, is that you are there for them for the continuation of their pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, and post-pregnancy health issues. And so that, that really can help you to be the type of team player with longevity in consistency and seeing somebody that people would want. So, okay, so you can get involved before there's even pregnancy there. So now someone gets pregnant and then they see you. And how often should women be checking in to see their obstetrician or their nurse midwife? In the beginning of pregnancy, we generally see women once a month, every four weeks. As they get further on in their pregnancy, we increase it to every two weeks. And at the very end, when it's getting closer to time for them to be in labor, we see them every week towards the end. And then, of course, if complications arise, we might see them even more often than that, sometimes several times a week. 
I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Keith Ogasawara from Kaiser Permanente. He's a maternal fetal medicine specialist and Amanda Lowry, certified nurse midwife. And we're talking today about the process of pregnancy and delivery and women's health care. And what does it take to bring a new life into the world? If you've ever had a delivery with a midwife or with an OB and want to share something positive about your experience, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Nurse Amanda, you were saying that there are certain things that you might identify as complications, and that's when you would refer somebody to see a physician. So give me an example of what that might be. Somebody might come in and see me and they have high blood pressure and they're on high blood pressure medications. And for me, that's like a lot of my patients. (laughs) So, okay, so they come in and see you, they have high blood pressure, and that's a sign for you that there could be some things to consider. Correct. Uh, In our collaborative practice, what is great is that those patients don't automatically have to be um, strictly high risk and only see physicians. They can still come to see me and I can collaborate with my colleagues down the hall and go, hey, do we need to adjust her medication? Do we need to put her in special testing? And somebody can still see me or see me for one visit and a physician for the next and then come back and see me as needed. So you have the team approach. Now, Dr. Keith, let's talk about those women who get pregnant and they're hypertensive because that, when I see that in my office, makes me hypertensive because I get worried because there's a lot of medicines that, you know, we're told don't use in pregnant women. Don't use this. Don't use that. How do you approach high blood pressure in pregnant women and what medicines are safe? Well, interestingly, most of the antihypertensives are safe in pregnancy, the one class if someone is thinking about getting pregnant that we talk to our internists about is to take them off their what's called ACE inhibitors. Yeah, that would be our favorite blood pressure medicine. Right. Yeah, I know. And so that's the one that we always encourage people to, you know, switch off. So it's really important that I tell people if you know, I tell patients, if I see them before pregnancy even, if you're thinking about thinking about getting pregnant, please tell your doctor this so they can switch you off the medication you're on. Oh, if it was just that easy. I know. I know. Because, you know, sometimes... Now, there's different blood blood pressure medication classes. And sometimes you've gone through two or three, and then you get yourself on these wonderful blood pressure medicines we call ACE inhibitors. Lisinopril, Zestril, Captopril, Ramipril, you name it. Usually ends with the pril. And boy, don't we love those. Along with those angiotensin receptor blockers, ARBs, your Kozar, your Diavan, your Avapro, your Benicar... We love them, Dr. Keith, because they work well. So what would be some ones that would be safer? Well, it's very interesting because, yeah, I know you guys love them. And it's kind of funny. I hear you rattle off all those names. I kind of giggle to myself going, yeah, those are the ones we can't use. Exactly. And, you know, I know them off the tip of my tongue because we use them a lot because for a lot of people, they work really well. So those are my faves. Tell me what your faves are. Usually what we'll do is we'll use beta blockers. Something like labetalol, calcium channel blockers like uh, nifedipine, which you know you can get once a day dosing. Probably the, the one medication that's our kind of like favorite go-to is something called Aldamet or methyl dopa, which only I think OBGYNs use. I think use. you guys are the only ones, yeah. No, but the nephrologists will use it sometimes on their. True. Okay. All right. But I'll give we're that the to only you. two people that use it, I think. But yeah. you know, we use all the old medications. 
Well, and I often wonder is the reason why you do because people have had babies on certain medicines and those have been the ones, but it's kind of, I mean, honestly, it's unethical to do a trial and say, hey, let's see how many women have really bad complications when they use these new blood pressure medicines and then we'll just not give them to those patients because you can't really do that. That's kind of unethical. We don't want to know that there could be harm and put somebody at risk by trying it. But those oldies but goodies medicines from way back when, because thousands, if not probably millions of women have taken those medicines safely and given birth and everybody's been fine, that's why they go back to the oldies but goodies. That's correct. And, you know, like you're talking about Aldamid, that's the only medication that we have that actually has long-term outcome on where we know that kids did fine up to about age 7 to 10. And it's true. There are certain things called registries that are kept where if pregnant women are on medication, they report out any complications. And actually, most maternal fetal medicine specialists and often a lot of the OBGYNs have access to this because they're used to looking up stuff on some of these databases. And so oftentimes... What I will do is, in you know, my role as a specialist is, if I see someone coming on interesting medications that are that are pregnant, I often ask the internist or whoever their specialist is, okay, what's the list of medications you want to try, and what can we do without? And I'll kind of look up the medications for them and kind of advise both the physician and their patient what the risks are. And, you know, it's very interesting. It's quite interesting how most medications are actually relatively safe in pregnancy, contrary to what we like to think. There are, however, a few that are not safe we have to avoid, but you know, a lot of them are okay. Well, and I think as time has gone on, we found more and more medications that are actually safe during pregnancy. Whether we found that because, oh, by the way, they, you know, there's that TV show, didn't know I was pregnant. And I used to think that so wasn't true. But a friend of mine had a niece who had that happen. So, you know, certainly there's a lot of women who might have children and they don't realize it or they've been on medicine for their first or second trimester and all of a sudden now they're taken off of it. But hey, during that time they were actually on it and everything was fine. So keeping that national registry I think is essential. It's a way to do not a true trial, but but it's an ethical way to follow people to see if, hey, if you were on this medication, did you get an adverse outcome? Because you're right, a lot of times maybe they won't. And we're just nervous and scared about it for no good reason. That's correct. All right. Well, speaking of good reasons, stick with us because we're going to talk some more about other complications of pregnancy. Diabetes, that's a big one that a lot of people have. And we're going to talk a little bit about if that's a risk that would suggest that women need to be more careful or have cesarean sections based on the size of their baby. So we'll be right back after this quick break. You can join us, 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. 3689. Stay with us. On Saturday the 28th, singer-songwriter Doug Fitch performs his original music in the Atherton studio, from sweet slack key to fast and furious guitar picking. This Hoku and Grammy-nominated artist takes you on a journey through his interesting life. Enjoy an evening with Doug Fitch and his songs, February 28th at 7.30 p.m. Reservations at hprtickets.org or by calling 955-8821 during business hours. Chances are you're familiar with emojis, those little picture characters you can send in text messages. Well, you're about to have even more options. With the next update, which should come 
in the middle of this year, you will be able to set one of five skin tones for your emoji. I'm Kai Rizdal, trying to make emojis more inclusive next time on Marketplace from APN. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ferraro Choi, and Ulupono Initiative. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Keith Ogasawara, maternal fetal medicine specialist at Kaiser Permanente, and certified nurse midwife Amanda Lowry. And we're talking today about nature and delivery and what happens when women get pregnant and what's the safest way to bring their baby into the world and what are some of the complications that can arise along the way. Before the break, we were talking about blood pressure issues, which is something that we see that's very common. The, the people that I see often have high blood pressure. The people that uh, do get the women who get pregnant often have high blood pressure. And how do we co-manage that? How do we work together to find medicines that are safe? Now, there's another condition that seems to be increasing, unfortunately, although recently rates have gone down, and that is diabetes. Now, Diabetes is one of those conditions where blood sugar is high, and there are certain complications that can occur. In fact, pregnancy can cause a type of diabetes called gestational diabetes, but that can have effects on both the woman and the baby. So I'm going to ask both of you a question, and this is totally off the wall, but I'm going to ask anyway. Because diabetes is often associated with having large babies... What's the biggest baby ever delivered? Amanda, mm. give me a number. 12 and a half pounds. Oh, 12 and a half pounds. And if you delivered them, that would not be surgical? No. Okay. Dr. Keith, biggest baby ever delivered? Mine was 14 and a half. But 14 and a half pounds. Wow. <laughs> okay. And, and that's, that's pretty big. Surgical? That, that was pretty big, and that one did not come out the regular way. <laughs> okay. Well, and part of the reason why we mention it is because diabetes is certainly something that we see in a lot of people. We're seeing an increase in childhood diabetes. We're seeing an increase in diabetes in people as they get older. And a lot of it is tied to diet. There may be some genetic influences, etc. But pregnancy puts some unique stress on the body. And Amanda, is that one of those complications that you might identify when you see a pregnant woman and start to do some of her care and notice that her sugar levels are going up or there's a test they often do, a glucose tolerance test, where they eat a lot of sugar or they have a solution that's high in sugar and you check to see if their blood sugar rises. Is that one of those situations that kind of raises a red flag for you? It, it does. It is something that we would certainly co-manage uh, with OBGYNs, maternal fetal medicine specialists, as well as diabetes care teams. So a lot of it is just identifying women who have diabetes because a lot of women would come into my office without that diagnosis. So seeing if somebody is high risk for diabetes, either because of a family history or uh, weight, um, and screening those women early uh, because the sooner you know you have diabetes, the sooner you can get your blood sugars under control and the better control you have the healthier your pregnancy is going to be. What are some of the complications that can happen with uncontrolled diabetes? 
uh, big baby, obviously. Well, we just talked about that, 12 and 14 here. The baby not being able to be delivered vaginally and you needing a C-section, the complications with that. Babies get very used to having all of that sugar. When the mom's blood sugar is too high, the baby's used to getting all of that sugar. Then they're born, they're not getting that sugar, and the baby's blood sugar can then drop. Um, And that can lead to the baby having to be admitted into intensive care, getting sugar through an IV, things like that, longer um, stays in the hospital. Uh, They also have trouble regulating their their, uh, body temperature after they're born. Um, And in extreme cases, it can cause a fetal death. So that would be extreme. Okay, but it could be that serious. Now, can diabetic women breastfeed safely? Yes. And how is that going to be affecting their baby? Or would it? I mean, I assume if the blood sugar's high, the sugar's high in breast milk, they would be giving their baby a high sugar content. Is that not the case? Maybe it's not. It's not really high in sugar, but we also want that to happen. Breast milk is naturally, um, you know, has all of those good sugars in it. And for especially diabetic women, when they have their baby, we're concerned about the baby's blood sugar dropping. So we want them to breastfeed as early as possible and as often as possible to help prevent that. So it can actually help prevent the drop in the sugar for the baby and can cause a drop for the mother, which may also be a benefit for both. Yes. Okay. Dr. Keith, what are some of the other diabetes complications that can occur during pregnancy? Because I would imagine as a specialist, you would manage women who might have this particular complication. And over the last couple of years, I've seen in the literature that a lot of the medication that I would, I mean, my assumption from training was diabetic, pregnant equals insulin. Because there are no safe oral medications that you can use for diabetes. But that's not necessarily the case. So what's the latest on using diabetes pills when you're pregnant? Are there ones that are safe now? Yeah, some of the, once again, the old standby medication like Glyburide, that's actually something that you can use in gestational diabetes. For someone who, say, might need a little bit of insulin, but you go, well, let's try, you know, they're kind of afraid of needles. We say, well, why don't we try this? pill. Sometimes it works. You know, oftentimes you can start it and it's mostly working with their diets. If we split up their calories and their, you know, split up their carbohydrate load, you can get their sugars under control. Exercise. It's just typically, it's just basically it's the same as taking care of any other diabetic. It's just that they happen to be pregnant and often it's just the pregnancy making them diabetic. How does pregnancy make someone diabetic? Well, if you think about it, when you're pregnant, you have a baby in you that's going to basically consume glucose. It needs to eat, and it's being fed through the placenta and the umbilical cord. And so you're naturally going to try and drop your blood sugar. And so when you become pregnant, the way your body is, say, hardwired, the physiology, what it does is it produces a lot of hormones and compounds that make you insulin-resistant, just like a regular diabetic as you know when you talk about insulin resistance and you know people with regular type 2 diabetes and that's what's really happening it's it's sort of an a physiological response that is just being you're just pushing the mom over the edge and she becomes diabetic in pregnancy because there's a one in two chance if you have gestational diabetes or diabetes in pregnancy that you will get diabetes later in life yes it's about a 40 to 60% lifetime conversion risk 
what I always tell women is that pregnancy is a big stress test. If you get pregnant, your body gets stressed a little bit, and any underlying medical condition that you have might get unmasked, whether it be diabetes, uh, hypertension, even cardiovascular disease. There's a high blood pressure disease in pregnancy called preeclampsia, and they're actually finding that women who develop this are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease later in life. And so preeclampsia is that elevation of your blood pressure that you didn't have before you were pregnant, and now you have when you're pregnant, and that can also lead to some serious complications. Preeclampsia could lead to eclampsia, and, and tell us a little bit more about what that means. Well, eclampsia is an old term uh, that was used to describe what they called eclamptic fits of pregnancy, which was a seizure. And preeclampsia is a disease that's, you know, pre is before eclampsia seizure. And it's a high blood pressure disease that also causes damage to the kidney. So you spill protein in the urine and you get swollen. And part of the issue is that you get swelling in your brain, which can sometimes cause headaches, visual changes, and seizures. And you know, this is one of the things that prenatal care is designed to pick up. This is why, as Amanda described earlier, we start seeing people as they get closer to term every two weeks and then once a week because most preeclampsia occurs near the end of pregnancy. So that's why it's very important for them to get prenatal care. And the treatment for eclampsia is delivery. Delivery. Surgical or not. You can. Interesting, this is one of those things we were talking about at the beginning of the show where I said, actually, preeclampsia is not an indication for cesarean section. You can actually try and you know, get someone's labor going, induction of labor. It's actually, that is actually the preferred method for delivery. And the reason that that's preferred as opposed to going directly to surgical delivery is because it's been found to be safe? It's been found to be safe, and, you know, you avoid the risk. There are some risks of cesarean section. So let's talk about those risks, because you do the cesarean sections, and and that's usually for someone who cannot deliver normally. What are those reasons? What are the indications currently for having a cesarean section? Uh, there's quite a few indications. I mean, one of the ones that are, you know, a lot of people will talk about is oftentimes if someone has a prior cesarean section, they usually want to have another one. And, you know, it is an issue for our women who live, say, on the neighbor islands because the hospitals there are not set up to do vaginal births after cesarean section. Why is it different? Is it because there's actually been an incision made into the uterus and that particular area could be weaker? if undergoing the pressure of childbirth? Yes, there's a small risk that the scar will open during the labor and delivery process. It's about half a percent or one in 200 women who undergo a trial of labor after a cesarean section uh, may have the scar open. And if that scar opens during labor, it's, it is a disaster and it has, you have to be able to do a cesarean section immediately at that point. So if you're on a neighbor island, if you are living in a rural area and you're trying to have a home birth and you've had a previous cesarean section, this could go well or this might not and you need to have a backup plan. Yes, that's why, uh, at least for us, when we tell people that they want to try a vaginal birth after a cesarean section, we usually recommend that it's done in a major medical center that has the ability to do what we call rescue, which is basically an a, the ability to do a very rapid cesarean section if a you know complication arises. Granted, the risk of complication is low, 
But it's one of those things where if it occurs, it occurs usually very quickly. And if you don't do something quickly, uh, it, it can be a disaster for both the mom and the baby. So in that particular situation, home birth, not really recommended? It would not be recommended. Just to be in a medical center should that happen. So that would be one of the one of the reasons why you would want to consider cesarean is is if you've had prior cesarean section, and what if you lived really far away? What if you're on a neighbor island? Would that we talked we were trying to talk about what are the indications for cesarean section? Prior cesarean possibly an indication, but does geography play a role in this at all, or not really? Well, if you're if you have a normal pregnancy that's progressing normally, it shouldn't. You know, it's... So it doesn't have to be. So prior cesarean, not necessarily a complete indication to do a secondary cesarean section for your next child. No. In fact, we actually encourage women to try, have a trial of labor. But trial it, of vaginal birth vaginal after birth. cesarean. They call it a VBAC. Trial to do that. Right. But okay. it should be done in a situation where... Controlled setting should there be an emergency. So what would be an indication for cesarean? Multiple multiple babies, twins, quadruplets, would that be an indication? Or what are the current medical indications for having a surgical delivery? Well, usually it would be things where you can't deliver uh, the baby vaginally or through the vagina. One of the big ones I would tell people is if you have what's called a placenta previa. That means that the afterbirth or the placenta pre means before, is in front of the baby or covering the cervix. So you would deliver that first, and that could be a problem. That would be a big problem. You could have quite a bit of bleeding. That's not a good thing. No. Generally, that's not what you want. Okay. So placenta previa, that's an indication. You mentioned that the largest child you ever delivered was 14 pounds. So you could have a situation where there was something going on and the baby was just too large. Yes. I mean, a lot of times we talk about weights of the babies. Now, the problem is, you know, by definition, I do a lot of ultrasounds for a living. Maternal fetal medicine specialists also do a lot of ultrasounds because we do prenatal diagnosis. And, you know, as a generalization, a lot of times you'll hear people throw a number between 10 and 11 pounds. If the estimated fetal weight is about 11 pounds or greater in someone who does not have diabetes, you know, we would offer those people a cesarean section if someone has diabetes and their baby weighs about 10 pounds, we would also offer that woman you know, a cesarean section. That doesn't mean that she has to have it. She could, of course, do a tri- what we call a trial of labor. She could try and go into labor because oftentimes the estimated fetal weight is off. It is an estimate. We could be you know, overestimating the weight. could be smaller than we think. So possibly size, that could be an indication. Other indications, we mentioned eclampsia. That would be an indication, depending on the situation and how bad it is. Not necessarily preeclampsia, but if you were truly having an issue with eclampsia, what would be another indication for cesarean section? Oftentimes, if you're having an issue with delivery, the baby does not tolerate labor for some reason. So in the process of doing a trial of traditional labor, something doesn't go well. Yes, if the baby doesn't seem to be tolerating labor, there's issues going on, or sometimes people just, you know, their their labor gets obstructed. They get stuck, and they can't progress anymore. 
And Amanda, that would be something that if you were in the process of helping a woman deliver, you would recognize, you would say, okay, this isn't, this isn't progressing the way we expect it to. And then you'd have the ability to get your team together to help you. Correct. We always have the team, or at least in our institution at Kaiser at Moana Lua here, we always have a team available in-house. So I might be seeing a woman through her entire labor, and I'm the one in and out with the nurses in the room, but we always have that nice safety net of a surgeon in the background if that were necessary. If we find out that for whatever reason her baby's just not going to fit through her pelvis or if the baby is in some sort of distress. And that's where fetal monitoring can help. These days we can do a lot of different types of monitoring to make sure the baby is okay progressing through labor and make sure that everything goes the way it should. And if not, then you get your assistance. Yes, and there are a lot of tricks that we have, say, if a woman's not progressing um, in her labor, things that we can do to help her progress. Uh, One of the biggest things that we see um, that causes a woman to not progress in labor is malpositioning of the baby. So the baby's not in the best position to be delivered. Um, So sometimes we can move patients into different positions, get them doing different exercises to help the baby turn into the correct position to be able to be delivered. And by this position, I don't mean a breech baby. So a breech baby is where the feet are coming out first. That's an indication for a C-section. I'm more talking about which ba- which direction the baby is looking in the pelvis. Sure, if they're looking up, if they're looking down, if they're looking sideways, there could be some situations as they're trying to be born that could maybe be modified because you can do things to help with that. Correct. Now, where do most nurse midwives fit in as far as pain management during pregnancy? Like, not pregnancy as much as during delivery. Epidurals, other types of medications, fine when you're delivering with a, with a midwife in addition to when you're delivering with a doctor. When some people have the thought that if you deliver with a midwife, you can't have any, any medicine. Certainly not. No. So our number one priority, of course, is a healthy mom and a healthy baby. That's the number one priority for, I think, everybody in obstetrical care. That's what we want. Uh, second thing that we're looking for is to give women the birth that they want, to follow their birth plan, to help them have that magical experience that is going to be a positive experience for the rest of their lives. And if that means that they want to have a natural delivery without pain medicine, great. If that means that they want an epidural and don't want to feel anything, great. We want to support the woman's ideal delivery. So midwives, epidurals, totally okay. Yes. Yep. See, you didn't even realize that some people thought that. And yet I've had other people say to me, oh, no, I want to have an epidural. I've been told I can't do that if I'm having a midwife at my delivery. And you're here to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's a rumor. We just myth busted. Totally can happen. At least in the hospital setting, obviously. If you're having a home delivery, you can't have an epidural. But in a hospital setting, sure. True. And epidurals would be – I can't imagine you would be able to do that in the home. That requires sterile environment and all these sorts of things. Okay. Well, we're going to talk some more in just a minute about some of the other things that people hear about childbirth that may not be completely accurate. And we're going to talk a little bit about those surprise pregnancies. There's TV shows about that. There's people I know who have had that happen to family members. And how could that possibly be? So when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about some of the most interesting experiences both of you have have had in your career thus far. 
And we'll keep everybody in suspense on that one. If you have a question, want to know something about the process of delivering a baby, you can join us at 941-3689. Toll free from our friends in the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here on The Body Show. We'll be right back. Stay with us. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio for the news because it brings us closer to the world around us. Couldn't begin my day or end my day without knowing what's happening in the world. And being here in the middle of the Pacific, it's comforting to know that there is the world out there and that we can hear all their news. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. For Black History Month, New Letters on the Air pays tribute to the late J. California Cooper, a writer of fiction and plays who ranked action above race. If you happen to blow my brains out, it would not make me feel better if the hand is black. It would not make you feel better if the hand was white. Listen to the writing of J. California Cooper, a past American voice of New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30, following Marketplace. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Keith Ogasawara, OBGYN and Specialist in Maternal Fetal Medicine, and Amanda Lowry, certified nurse midwife, both from Kaiser Permanente. And we are talking about the process of getting pregnant and delivering a baby, a healthy baby at that, and hopefully a healthy mom and a healthy family in the process. Now, before the break, we were talking a little bit about indications to have surgical childbirth, to have a cesarean section. And we mentioned there are a couple of those that are fairly obvious. And then there's always the issue that you know, a lot of women do this for convenience or the doctors do this for convenience, and that may not be the best of all scenarios. So we're talking a little bit about why that would not necessarily be something you would want to do. Now, we also mentioned that we're going to talk a little bit about the most unusual circumstance both of my guests have had in the past. And before we do that, we have a caller on the line. We have Don from Eva Beach. Welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you? Okay, I'm going to be a grandpa in August. Congratulations. Yeah, first grandchild. Now, you guys were talking a, a little bit earlier about that one sickness or health issue that can come up right before pregnancy. What was it called again? Preeclampsia. Yeah, okay. Now, how do we go about preventing that or what do we do to avoid that when my daughter gets closer to her due date? Good question, Dr. Keith. How do you avoid preeclampsia? You know, if you can figure that one out, you win the million-dollar prize. That You'll be is, out of a job, Keith. Okay. Uh, that is That has been one of the things we have not been able to figure out. I mean, uh-huh. they've tried a lot of things. Uh, if someone has certain conditions, high blood pressure, sometimes low-dose aspirin started in the first trimester may work. But for someone who's just a regular uh-huh. person who's just you know, having an uncomplicated pregnancy. The biggest thing I tell people to do is, you know, make sure that you keep your prenatal appointments, you know, get your blood pressure checked and everything because that's what, 
you know, the docs, the midwives, their nurse practitioners are looking for. They're they're really looking for preeclampsia towards the end. They're they're watching for you. Uh-huh. All right, Don, nothing you can do unless you become super scientist, millionaire, Nobel Prize winner and figure that one out. Yeah, because when she was um, younger, she had one of those um, assists on her, was that the fibroid or something like that? And they said that she probably would, wouldn't be able to have children. And then she got pregnant, and then the baby was growing, like, outside of the tube, and she lost it. And now we have another opportunity to have a, a grandchild, and I'm really looking forward to it. And thanks for your info, and, and we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. Good job, Don. Make sure she gets her checkups done regularly. But I'm glad to hear that you're going to be a grandpa, that she's beaten the odds that everybody said it might not happen. And now, look, you're going to have a new addition to the family. So good job for her and good luck to both of you. All right. Well, I'm going to keep everybody in suspense about most unusual delivery because we've got John on the phone from Waikiki. John, welcome to The Body Show. Hello. Hello, what can we do for you today? Yes, well, this is a 50-year-old story with a question. Uh, 50 years ago this Saturday, my eldest son was born in Bangkok when I was a Peace Corps volunteer there in a private uh, Christian hospital. The German woman who delivered the baby uh, said that I could watch as long as there were no complications. If there were, then out you go, which I agreed. And there were quite a lot of complications because his head was far too large for my wife's uh, small pelvis and so she said out you go i have to call in a thai specialist in major high forceps delivery well i wasn't sure what that entailed but i out i went and when the baby was safely born and placed in my arms well i almost fell on the floor because he had these two large horns projecting from his head and i said my lordy what kind of deformed baby is this and the nurse said don't worry that's from the forceps pincers that baby's head will resume a normal shape which it did and that was a nice outcome uh but i'm just curious uh uh, I, I heard that that procedure was stopped because of danger to the baby's brain. Um, and uh, so in that case, should the proper procedure, this was the first pregnancy, have been a, a, a cesarean rather than a major high forceps delivery? Good question, John. This was like 50 years ago? Yes. My, my boy will be 50 years old this Saturday. <laughs> well, happy birthday now. to him, and I'm glad his head got rid of the horns and went back to normal shape, and I'm sure he is too. But I think it's an interesting question because what you're asking is not what we do today, but what was done 50 years ago and also in a different country. So it really lends itself to a lot of curiosities there. Dr. Keith, do they use forceps for deliveries anymore? And if so, is there any risk to the baby? You know, it's very interesting. When he brought that up, I was kind of chuckling to myself inside because it is true back in the day 50 years ago that would be the method for delivering some of these kids because at the time cesarean section was considered to be such a you know dangerous procedure you know there was such a risk for infection and you know bleeding and post you know after the surgery complications we still use forceps actually today and it's actually quite safe in the, the you know proper hands with a skilled obstetrician forceps are actually very safe. Um, we don't do it as high as the high forceps before. We usually do what are now called uh, low low to outlet forceps, and it's mostly just to help with that last bit 
of delivery just to get that baby off that little hump, as we say at the end. But, you know, it's quite safe. So forceps in the right hands are actually quite safe. And 50 years ago, that was actually something that would have been done. And in this case, good outcome. Yes, it would have been done. And in fact, of those people that generation, they were the ones that developed the forceps and they were extremely skilled with it. And historically, that's what they were for. It was because the C-section at that time was such a highly complicated procedure with such you know, worrisome complications after delivery. That's why they developed those things. And now that the cesarean section is much safer, we don't have to use high forceps like you mentioned, but it is still equipment that can be used during delivery safely in the right hands. Correct. Okay. And would that be, Amanda, would that be something that you would do? Or if you noticed that there was a problem, would forceps be used by a surgeon? How would that happen? Forceps as well as vacuum deliveries uh, would be with a physician. Okay, and you mentioned another term I wanted to define real quickly. Vacuum deliveries, Dr. Keith, you're going to have to tell us about that. A vacuum delivery is uh, another way of delivering the baby. The forceps people kind of describe as, as, you know, he said the spoons. You put spoons that are designed to uh, form to the shape of the mother's pelvis and the birth canal as well as the shape of the baby's head to help with delivery. The vacuum is basically a suction cup that's placed on the scalp. And this, you apply a small vacuum to it, and then you pull some traction on the vacuum, and you basically use that to help pull the baby's head out. And these are all, they sound barbaric, but it's actually very safe, done regularly by experts. This is not something that uh, people should fear if they're told this is something that needs to be done during your delivery. No, and, you know, I think, you know, some women might feel that they're a failure, you know, because they didn't succeed in having a quote-unquote natural childbirth. But I tell people, you know, that's not a failure. It's just that, you know, you were, we, you know, I guess part of me just says that we're very lucky that we have options available to, like, you know, speed up the delivery process if something's happening. I mean, that's usually when these are used. Usually few things are happening. The baby is in trouble. You need to, you know, hurry up the delivery. Or sometimes the mom is just so tired that she cannot effectively bring the baby out and she just needs that little extra help because you know even with these instruments the mom has to still help us and push i want to add one last thing he had talked about um the baby's head having a little bit of a funny funny shape and uh it is very very normal even without forceps or vacuum uh for babies to be born with a little bit of a cone head uh, and lots and lots of dads um are worried about it and moms moms and dads and uh parents as well um the baby's head is naturally meant to form to the birth canal and come out, and babies very, very commonly have a cone head or some bruising um, on their head, and it does just totally go back to normal within 24 to 48 hours after the baby's born. So, Well, and John's son from 50 years ago, he's turning 50 this Saturday. He sounds like he went back to normal pretty quickly, so that that's definitely to his favor. So, okay, so don't be scared. If you hear these terms, it's not a failure of natural childbirth. It's not going to cause long-term complications. This is a normal process of delivery. And that's why you wait a few days and everything should be okay. All right. So now I've been holding people in suspense, and I'm in suspense myself. I want to hear, let's hear first from you, Amanda, a most unusual delivery experience that you have had so far in your career. 
Okay. Um, so prior to coming to Kaiser, I was uh, serving in the United States Air Force as a nurse midwife. And I was overseas in Germany. And we had a, a patient who came in through the ER, uh, somehow had gotten through her whole pregnancy and uh, physical fitness exams and physical exams gotten overseas, which you have to go through medical exams before you can get overseas, um, and came in, had no idea that she was pregnant and delivered a happen. healthy, full-term baby. How do you think that got missed? I don't know. But, I mean, it's not just on the TV show. You really could still have regular menstrual cycles. You could not know you're pregnant. You could have a very small baby, and yet there you go. You saw it. Yes. Okay. And you think, how can you not feel a baby move? But sometimes it can get confused for gas pains or things of that nature. And some women have their period throughout their entire pregnancy, or some women just have very irregular periods. So if you're so only having a know. period once a year, you don't think much of it when you don't have one for nine months. So, and particularly, was this this particular individual, is this their first child? Yes. So they didn't really have a comparison. So they didn't really know, hey, this is, hey, I know these symptoms. Because I've, I've had a person come in to see me and say, yeah, I think I might be pregnant. I don't know. This is the third child, I think. And I'm like, you're like seven months. What do you mean you think? But she knew and just was trying to avoid doing anything about it until she was ready to deliver. So it can actually, if it's your first baby, you might not know. And if you if it's your third, you probably do know. And there's something else going on for the reason why you're not seeing your OB. Okay. But let's talk to you, Dr. Keith Ogasawara, weirdest delivery in your career. Try and top that one. Well, I was thinking about this. I think this. you can, yeah. I think I can. But it All was... Right. It's only because that some people say I'm a little bit on the older side now. Oh, you don't look at it at all. I know, and I love you too. But <laughs> uh, years ago, I we had a patient come in to the hospital with no prenatal care, and she basically, when we got to her, had two feet sticking out. And so we were like, oh, my God, it's a breech baby. So we ended up doing a vaginal breech delivery. We were all happy. We were all you know, oh, we got the kid out safe. The baby was doing great. We're so happy. And then so the mom says, oh, I feel like I have to push. And I was with one of the, a resident at the time, and I said, oh, it's the placenta coming out. Just have her push. And he goes, he feels up. He goes, this placenta feels kind of hard. And so we, I reached and checked, and I was like, ooh, there's a second one in here. Baby number two. Baby number two. So she had, you know, undiagnosed twins. Did she have a diagnosed pregnancy? She knew she was pregnant, but I don't okay. think she got prenatal care. And so. so she really didn't know, too. She didn't know. Wow. So I remember the dad was rather surprised. I would think. You know, you don't have to take home one. You have to take home two. Add your wife. You're now a family of four. Okay, so it can happen that, you know, even if you choose not to have prenatal care, if you've never had an ultrasound, because I would assume, Dr. Keith, an ultrasound would deliver, would, would yes. diagnose... It's, to pregnancies. Oh, yeah, that's it's very uncommon for that to occur right. nowadays because we take a look all the time. Now, what about 3D ultrasounds? That seems to be this real cool technique. People say you can get a chance to see the face of your baby before they're born. Is it a bunch of just just marketing or is there really a medical utility to that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, years ago when I used to, uh, when I started doing this, one of the... Uh, Older original docs that 
you know, was one of the pioneers in doing OBGYN ultrasound, used to tell me, you know, we do 3D ultrasound all the time on the older machines. He said, we just do it in our head, which was true. It is, you know, <clears throat> reconstructing the image in your head and thinking about it. The 3D ultrasound, you know, there is some medical utility. I mean, people always think about it as taking pretty baby pictures. That's what most people think the 3D ultrasound is used for. It's actually, the, the term we use is called volume rendering, though, and there actually is some utility for it, some for uh, fetal diagnosis when you're trying to look at things, you use the volume calculations to do things, but also for when they're not pregnant, the GYN ultrasounds, they use it to take a look at uterine abnormalities and things, and so there is some utilization for the technology. So medically, it really can be helpful under certain circumstances. And by the way, you might get to take pretty baby pictures, but it actually could be helpful medically as well. Yes, although most of people will think it's just pretty baby pictures. Well, and it does both. Okay. But ultrasounds are generally very safe. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any harm to either the baby or to the mother. An ultrasound is is totally safe, and there is no sort of side effect. Correct. And the, the energy that we use is so low that it's completely safe. The one caveat I always tell people when they push me hard, I say, well, there was this one study that said there was increased left-handedness in babies that received a lot of ultrasounds. Well, and you know, I have I have a brother who's left-handed, and some people say they have better brains, they're more creative, who knows? But I have a feeling you were just kind of pulling their chain with that one. Yes. All right. Okay, now, Amanda, you do ultrasounds. Yes. Nurse midwives can do ultrasounds just like physicians can. So it sounds to me like you can do absolutely everything up until the time of birth. And if birth goes normally, you're on it. And if there's any complications or there's anything that suggests that there could be a need for surgery, you get the other team member like Dr. Keith or one of his colleagues and you all work together. Generally, yes. Fantastic. Any last thoughts on things that people didn't realize midwives can do? Not to put you on the spot at all. Things, I think just knowing that there are midwives that provide care in a hospital setting. A lot of people associate midwives with the home birth midwife. Um, so the fact that you can get care and deliver your baby um, in the hospital or that even if you have some of those high-risk conditions like the high blood pressure, you can still see a midwife uh, and that you can see a midwife throughout your life. Absolutely. That was news that uh, we all could learn from. Well, I want to thank both of you for sharing your expertise with us today on the show. Dr. Keith Ogasawara from Kaiser Permanente Maternal Fetal Medicine. You were pinch hitting for your sister Eileen, who I hear is getting better, particularly since you were here today. So she owes you one. Eileen, if you're listening, you're going to get a call. And thank you again, Amanda Lowry, Certified Nurse Midwife, for explaining the concept of midwifery to people who may not be familiar with that term. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We will see you next week when we talk about pain management right here at 5 on The Body Show. See you then. Woo!